Now, I'm not someone to begin a sermon with a gratuitous lawyer joke. Actually, I am, but there are far too many lawyers in our parish for that to be prudent. So, no lawyer jokes. But did you notice the first six words of the Gospel reading? Just then a lawyer stood up. Now you just know that nothing good is going to come of this. It's all downhill from here. This is as good as it's going to get. And the lawyer asks a short question, which is a mercy in a profession that calls a 10,000 word document a brief. Sometimes the hardest questions to answer are the shortest, like what is the meaning of life, why did the chicken cross the road, and which is the greatest commandment. And rather like a prosecutor attempting to tie a witness in an impossible to get out of knot, the lawyer hurls that last one at Christ. But if there is anyone who can sidestep a gotcha question, it's Jesus. And with a flourish of his hand and a shimmy of his feet, he not only escapes the trap, but transforms it into the birth of one of the greatest short stories in world literature. The name given to the hero of the story has become code for all that is kind and compassionate in the human spirit. Down the centuries, this parable has inspired millions to acts of mercy. It has comforted the sorrowful, soothed the hurting, restored crushed souls. It has given us a nice feeling. It's all about being kind to people and doing good to others. And it can make us all misty-eyed and sentimental. Or not. Because... If we take the parable of the Good Samaritan as a source of comfort, then we've got it badly wrong. Jesus didn't tell it in order to make the lawyer feel comfortable. It's not a pat on the back, but a poke in the ribs. And if I do my job in the next few minutes, you will never again go to the parable of the Good Samaritan for comfort. You will be driven to despair by it. You will maybe even wish you had never heard of that wretched road to Jericho, that miserable victim of the mugging, those callous religious leaders, and that heathen with a heart. The victim is Jewish, and he's making his way along a path through steep mountains, bandit country. This road is 17 miles long and it drops two miles in altitude. And like countless travellers before him, he is attacked, robbed and left for dead. Now fortunately for the casualty, a priest is going down that road. Unfortunately for the casualty, a priest is going down that road. The law states that anyone touching a dead body will be ritually unclean for the rest of the day and for all the priest knows, this man lying on the road may be dead and the priest can't risk the horror of being ritually unclean for the rest of the day. That must be it. 
will give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he passes by this man for good religious reasons. Now fortunately for the casualty, there is another holy man on that road, a Levite. Unfortunately for the casualty, there is another holy man on that road, a Levite. One with a bit of savvy about him. He has heard blood-curdling tales of mayhem in those hills. How bandits ambush innocent travellers. One lies on the road pretending to be injured. And when a gullible traveller stops to help, they are attacked from behind by accomplices. Oh yes, this Levite is wise to those tricks. He knows that this man is faking. Well, they aren't going to ambush him that easily. And so he hurries by. Now, unfortunately for the casualty, who should be travelling along that road but a Samaritan? An unclean, morally delinquent infidel. A man who will probably go over to the body and rummage through the pockets to see if the bandits have left anything. Fortunately for the casualty, who should be travelling along that road but a Samaritan who fails to match the racist stereotype, who exposes the prejudice of the lawyer and shows up his bigotry for the evil it is. And we know the end of the story. Jews and Samaritans, Hatfields and McCoys, Hutus and Tutsis, Palestinians and Israelis, North and South Koreans, Northern Irish Protestants and Catholics, or any other ethnic or cultural enemies you care to name. Jews and Samaritans had important things in common, including a shared history and a land that had been home to each, but was now separated by a violent enmity. Let's understand how much Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Jews saw Samaritans as lawbreakers, heretics and heathens. Around 700 years earlier, the Hebrew land of Samaria was conquered by the Assyrian Empire. The people were taken into captivity and ever since then, the Samaritans have been a mixture of cultures, races and religions. They were not pure according to the Hebrew definition of pure, and they didn't observe much of the Old Testament law. On the other hand, Samaritans saw Jews as self-righteous, arrogant hypocrites. So here's Jesus talking to a Jewish lawyer and a Jewish audience, and he asks, who is the victim's neighbour? Is it his fellow Hebrew, the respectable leader of his own people? Is it the man who is one of us, his brother, his compatriot? Or is it the man who is not of our tradition, the man who isn't welcome in his home, the man who would cause him to publicly disown his daughter if she were to marry him, the man who wants him dead? Jesus says, that person 
whom you have every reason to despise, that is your neighbour. That is the person you must love. Your neighbour is not the person next door you have nice chats with in the front yard. It's easy to help him. Your neighbour is not the lady down the street you smile at at the store. You would never walk past her if she were lying in the gutter. Your neighbour is not even the person you don't know and have no feelings for one way or the other. It's no big deal to come to that person's help when they're in trouble. No, your neighbour is the person you don't get on with, the person who slanders you or gossips about you or stabs you in the back or intentionally hurts you. And Jesus says we must love that person as much as we love ourselves. Many people have tried to retell this parable using modern-day bad guys in an effort to give it the same sort of impact it had when Jesus told it. Someone in my church youth group recast it as the parable of the good punk rocker, which probably tells you more about the prejudices of late 1970s suburban England than it does about Samaritans. It didn't hurt me to hear the parable of the good punk rocker. It didn't sting. It didn't shock me or challenge me. In fact, I was rather comforted by the parable of the good punk rocker. It didn't disturb me because I'd never met a punk rocker. And if I was, uh, I, it would sure to be somebody really cool because anything my parents disapproved of was bound to be really cool. I suppose that in those chilly days of the Cold War, when West, we in Western Europe looked anxiously at the countries to the east, the parable of the good Soviet would have done the trick. That would have disturbed me and stung me. So how about you? The parable of the good person you think hates you. Now we're getting to the true horror of this parable. We Christians can be so picky about which parts of the Bible we believe and act on. And the parts we don't agree with, we like to interpret the meaning out of them. So we read straightforward commands of Jesus like, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And we can say, well, whatever it was Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies, pray for them and do good to them. He surely didn't mean love your enemies, pray for them and do good to them. He meant something else. It's a mistranslation of the Greek or something. He probably went on to state a lot of exceptions, caveats and conditions to his command. But the gospel writers didn't have the space to list them. But when we truly understand the parable of the Good Samaritan in its original context, we can't fail to be shocked and even offended by it. Now this is so challenging that we can end up feeling completely discouraged and think that the life Jesus calls us to is not even worth attempting because we're bound to fail. And that is an option. We can write off the command to love our enemies as being hopelessly unrealistic and not even try to fulfil it. 
It's an idea that is nice in theory, and maybe we can make some small gestures in its direction, but it's not for real life, not something you can actually set your mind to and achieve. Or we can change the way we define love. The love Jesus calls us to have is not the kind that is rooted in warm feelings. It is impossible to have that kind of love for your enemy. You can't grit your teeth and try very hard to produce affection for someone who has seriously wronged you. And if you want those feelings to come before you love your enemy, then you will be waiting for eternity. Now, this kind of love is different. So foreign is it to our sense of right and wrong that it seems completely unnatural, contrary to logic and even fairness. Unnatural? Well, maybe supernatural is a better word, because it can only be born by the seed of God dropping into your heart. This love for an enemy begins with a decision. It is a choice to see the humanity of the other, the belovedness of the other, the true image of God stamped on the soul of the other. How is this possible? I'm not sure I know, but it drives me to God, to the cross, to confess my weakness and powerlessness, to declare my utter inability to live the way Christ calls, and then to depend somehow on his grace to do for me what I cannot do for myself. No excuses, no defences, and definitely no lawyers. Amen.